Once again, I am very grateful to the Lord uh, for enabling me to be among you and uh, also very grateful to the leadership of this church allowing me to um, occupy this uh, pulpit uh, so that I may bring uh, God's word uh, this morning. And please do receive greetings uh, this morning. Uh, I talked briefly uh, with my wife. They had finished their service. It was way close to uh, six, uh, close to getting dark, six o'clock in the evening. Um, so they had finished their service and uh, desired that I pass her greetings to you as I told her we were coming here. Uh, and, and so uh, we'll hopefully be getting opportunity to talk more uh, later uh, during the lunch fellowship and even after the service later. But for now, I would want to bring God's word to you from the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, why am I bringing to you uh, preaching from the book of Acts? For a number of years, I've been preaching uh, through the Gospel of Matthew back in Eldoret, uh, Kenya, and uh, uh, when I came to the end of uh, that book, I thought, what should we do? In fact, I even thought maybe I should preach from the Old Testament, but then consulting with my two uh, fellow elders, um, we agreed uh, that then I move on to show how the Lord Jesus Christ, um, who uh, is the theme indeed, uh, and actively so in the book of Matthew, in the Gospels, how then, uh, even when, or as he went to heaven, uh, then that was not the end of his work. Actually, he continued to work. Um, he continued to to build his church. He uh, is building his kingdom. And the best way to do that was then to move from the book of, uh, you know, gospel uh, passage, the New Testament passage, the, the gospel of Matthew, into uh, the book of Acts. And that's why uh, I want this morning to bring before you just one of the passages in fact, I've been preaching through the book of uh, Acts uh, when I was leaving my country. The last uh, Sunday I was there, I preached from, Matthew, uh, from Acts chapter 4, uh, the very last uh, portion of that chapter, um, showing the power of the gospel, how the gospel is revealed in um, uniting people together, uh, how the gospel uh, indeed works out that when it is preached powerfully and that those who are united under the powerful preaching of the gospel will care for one another. That is the end of chapter 4. Uh, and uh, when I go back, then I have no choice but to prepare to preach in chapter 5. And as you know, 
chapter 5 then brings us to the reality that indeed sin is still among God's people. But now, uh, let's uh, uh, be in chapter 2. Now, I'll not uh, be preaching from verses 1 to uh, 13. Uh, often people would love to debate on, on those chapters. But even in verses 14 onwards, uh, the, the prophecy of Joel, and I'm thankful Pastor read a portion of that, um, quoted here uh, by Peter. But we are going to look verses 14 all the way to 41, okay, as uh, the Lord would give us the opportunity to do so. And I am looking at this, verses 14 to 41, uh, calling it the first apostolic sermon. First apostolic sermon, Peter's sermon, um, why it is important. Obviously, our first point will uh, reveal why it is important, because people had mistaken what was happening. But it's also important because it is the first recorded preaching uh, of the apostles. We know that um, 50 days earlier, these apostles, particularly Peter, was such a fearful person. They, they had run away from their master. They had abandoned him. And uh, humanly speaking, if they are the ones that the, the, their master, that Jesus was banking on to continue with the, 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 the preaching of the gospel, then, friends, there was uh, very little uh, hope for them. They are a fearful bunch. However, the Lord Jesus had said, listen, I'm going away, but actually I am going to uh, fulfill my promise. I will send um, uh, my Holy Spirit upon you, uh, and you'll be empowered, you'll be able uh, to move forward with this work that you have seen me do, that I have uh, trained you, taught you to do. I'm going away. You are not left as orphans. I'll be with you. My Holy Spirit will be with you. And so here, friends, we are seeing how that is just beginning to unfold. And so in his summon, in Peter's summon, that is, we are seeing, uh, and what I'm, how I'm dividing it simply to help you remember is what is Pentecost? Who is Christ? And then we will move on to uh, ask the question, why all this? Is it necessary? Is it important? And indeed, we will see it's so important when we see how it turns out to reveal to us the amazing grace of God. So the first thing is, what is Pentecost? And that comes out, or as Peter responds to what we are raising here as a question, Peter is dealing with the, the, the misconception. These people had it all wrong. Um, so he, right at the introduction, he tells them where they are wrong, what it really is, 
and then moves on from there. So let's read from verse 14. I'll read 14 to 15, and then we will look at the other verses as we go along. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So the first thing is Peter is telling them, you are wrong. You've gotten it wrong. These people are not drunk. And now he moves on to bring the explanation, to show them that what has just happened, the, the, the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and then the divided tongues that uh, uh, were upon them like that of fire, and that the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And then now these people expressing it by speaking in languages that previously they had not learned, but the hearers learned that this is not madness, this is not um, dr people who are drunk and saying things they don't know, like sadly many uh, so-called churches, and as I said, our nearest uh, recent neighbors uh, are engaged in things that uh, you don't make sense of them. They just repeat themselves. A sentence would be repeated many times and the louder. My wife was saying this morning, they, they just think the louder they make themselves, uh, you know, be heard all over the place, that they're worshiping God. No, here were people who were engaged in speaking languages they didn't know, but the hearers knew what was the content. We have it there in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So these people are praising God for the mighty works that he is doing or has done. What works? Not necessarily the, the creation of the world, the mountains and the rivers. No, but the bringing about, the fulfillment of the promises that God had made. And that moves us now to see uh, there he, uh, Peter is explaining this, anchoring it on Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 that Pastor had earlier read. That God's promise of the last day to pour out his spirit on all people, or all, on all flesh, that promise has finally come. All who have the promise, um, Paul, you know, Peter wants us to, to see what was promised, that all who have this spirit on them will prophesy. Will prophesy. And by the way, that simply put, that simply means, will declare the words and deeds of God. 
That is simply put, that is prophecy. To declare the words and the deeds of God. And so that is what has happened. Peter wants these people to not miss the point. And of course, Peter says that the, the, the coming, the fulfillment of this comes with great previously unseen and beyond explanation events. Verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. By the way, I'm reading from ESV so uh, that you are aware. And so, here in verse 19, we are seeing that there will be events that have not been previously um, seen or interacted with. They're just beyond. But, but as we will see in verse 22, these things are fulfilled in none other but in the person and in the life and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 will show us that in a moment. Let me just read it so that you men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, we'll see that in a moment. But so these things are taking place in the life of Jesus or related to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, in other words, the Messiah with authority. Please, let's see just there in verse 20, one of those things said, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So there we are reading something about the darkness. Uh, and, and this leads us to think of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, turn now, as we see that in the book of Luke, Luke, chapter 23 verses 44 and 45 and and see how the darkness and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ are are brought tied together his work of uh, redeeming his people from the perspective now of God, how God sees it, what God was, happy, was, was doing. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Then verse 45. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That is, into two. And, and there, though, it's just two verses, and that last phrase, friends, really should help us to see 
Darkness is in the land. The Lord Jesus is, is crucified. But then something is happening. There in the temple, if we imagine it's somewhere like here with this thick, huge curtain blocking the people from the holy of holies. And what is happening just at that moment when darkness is over the whole land, then we are told, friends, that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's no man's business. That is God's business. If it's man's business, then they would begin tearing it from bottom. And some people going that way, some people going that way, and then it goes up. This is God's work from top to bottom. At what time? Just at that moment when there was this darkness. And so surely we are to see Jesus bearing the last judgment of his people. And there was so much that was happening. But surely that we can catch, we can see, we can relate to And now from heaven comes what we are reading in this passage. Back in Acts now, Acts chapter 2. A mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire. And you know, there at the end of verse 20, it says, before the great day, or before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And so, this day has come upon them. The mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. God is declaring that now there is hope. There is hope. And how do we see that? You you know, let's stand back. Let's ask ourselves, Joel, why are you bringing this, um, this prophecy? To what end? What for? What is consuming you, Joel? What message are you sending forth? And it is there at the end of verse 21. Or let's just read verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel's aim of even describing these things that had never before seen and experienced, Joel is telling us there is hope. There is hope that with the coming, this great day, this day of Pentecost, it actually opens a way for man to relate with God in a unique way. Man can be made right. Sinners, that is, can be made right with the living God. They can be justified. That is the big agenda. And so, as much as these people confused all that was going on on the day of Pentecost, Joel is saying, listen, this is unto salvation. And that's why it is very important. And so, What is Pentecost? Well, it is 
that salvation has come, that sinful man now can honestly find acceptance with God. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and God is saying, I have opportunity uh, to be interacted with. So that's number one. What is Pentecost? Number two, who is Christ? Because really, we cannot understand Pentecost. We cannot um, understand and appreciate salvation of God, which um, Joel is talking about at the very end, uh, shall be saved. But how does that salvation come about? The Lord Jesus Christ, if you like, the Messiah. So we ask the question, who is this Christ? And that we find in verses 22 all the way to, to 36. We ask, who is the Messiah? And Peter says, he is the attested one. God has provided or God has set forth ever clear, you know, clear evidences. No one can doubt them that Indeed, he is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. And we see this now. He does that in a number of ways. And he does that like a trained lawyer. Um, and by the way, my point at the end is to show that um, preachers of God's word even now, this morning, as we look at this passage, but whenever we, we bring God's word, we need to be like lawyers. We need to argue our point, our case. We need to bring one point and another and another and another. At the end, say, listen, you cannot but have dealings with what I have said before you. That is what Peter is doing in this passage. Well, let's just see that uh, briefly. Peter says, oh, Peter begins by saying something about the life of uh, Jesus. There in verse 22, the life of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, okay? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you, you yourselves know. So there's a lot that is coming up from there. Uh, Peter says, mighty works by, done by him through uh, God uh, and, and, uh, and signs. You know it. You know it. Let's just see how that comes out. Uh, back in Luke, Luke 24. Earlier we had look at Luke 23. Now, uh, Luke 24, just um, a verse there. Luke 24, verse 19. Just a small verse. Uh, this, uh, just after the resurrection, uh, those who were on the road to a mouse, and uh, they were feeling dejected. Um, and uh, the Lord Jesus engages them in their conversation verse 19 he says they respond to him and he said to them what things and they said to him concerning jesus of nazareth this is their own confession concerning jesus of nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty indeed indeed and word before god listen to the last phrase 
before God and all the people. So people knew Jesus and knew his greatness, knew him through the mighty works he had done. As much as they didn't want Jesus and denied him, they saw the mighty works that he did. So his life, he lived his life before people no one could deny it. Not only that, Peter then brings the second huge point, and he says, not only his life, but his death. Verse 23, we are back to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. So he has talked about his life, but now he says, you killed him. You killed him. And please, we're going to see, this is the very son of God, the very choice of God for the task that uh, God had sent him. But they killed him. A reminder that our times are in the Lord's hand. The Lord is sovereign. He is determined uh, what uh, things come to happen to us. And by the way, that's, that's a wonderful doctrine to live uh, by if it controls us. Wow, we know our lives are in the hand of the living God. However, this, his life was cut short, we may say. He was killed by wicked people as we are told uh, there in verse 23, okay? So his life, his death, and then his resurrection. Verse 24, verse 24. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so there, uh, Peter brings about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He lived and, and worked and everyone saw. But then he died. And then now he rose again. So his resurrection. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Uh, of course, death has no power over him. Peter uh, really uh, says here uh, that he, he brings more, more proof that indeed this is Jesus the Messiah that God had called about by doing what? By um, bringing forth, by raising, um, bringing, quoting uh, Psalm 16, which that lovely hymn that we sung, uh, Psalm 16, uh, verses 8 uh, to 11. And so it is quoted here. Um, verse, uh, let me read now Acts 2, verse, six, verse 20, 25. So David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to hates, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so that wonderful uh, psalm, really, David talks of, if you notice, <laughs> David talks of gladness, of rejoicing, of hope. Why? Why is David doing that? Because the father will not allow uh, his anointed to um, remain in death. He will have to reign over death. However, this psalm actually shows us that they can only have their fulfillment upon someone else. Because, and he goes on in this passage, verse 29, to say, you know, I may say to you with confidence, verse 29, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So who was David talking about and saying these mighty things about? Talking of gladness and rejoicing and hope. Ah, verse 30, being therefore prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Well, there we are. And that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see Corruption. So, friends, uh, this is amazing. Paul is bringing one proof after another. One would say tons of evidences, you know, to show that indeed uh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And, and Paul has shown that, Peter has shown that uh, the life he lived, the death he died, the resurrection uh, uh, that. Um, happened to him, and now the ascension, verse 33, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received this from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, listen, this is a conclusion of what he began. So verses 1 to 13 of Acts was misunderstood. The mighty things that happened there, misunderstood by these people. Uh, Peter, then from verse 14, then brings God's word to bear upon them and showing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that. So that verse 33, he says, this is indeed the fulfillment of the Pentecost. And really, it, it comes out beautiful, beautifully. And then, as he talks about this ascension, that this one who God has raised and made high, Peter says and brings in Psalm 110. Quoted here for us at the end of verse 34. 
or let me read 34 uh, and 35. Because David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This mm, Psalm 110, by the way, has been or was uh, many times uh, quoted by the Lord Jesus himself uh, in the Gospels. But it's a very, very messianic psalm. It, it really, it's like the crescendo. It's like the, the, the climax. Christ is exalted. And exalted like that, Christ then has been made Lord over all. But that verse catches his lordship in an interesting way. Because in that verse we are saying, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, it's like a father telling the son, my son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's a very, very powerful uh, statement. The father is telling the son, my son, you are going to succeed. And in fact, you're going to succeed because I'll make sure that any and all your enemies are subdued. Friends, when you think about that, honestly, it's a, a losing battle trying to fight against the living God. It's, it's a losing battle. Um, What's the conclusion to all this? Verse 36. Peter, very bold now. Peter, because of all that he has said before them. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We may not appreciate, but actually this is a very powerful, logical way of argument. Then at the end it's like, you can't escape this. Have dealings with this now. You answer me. You know, so if it was a court of law, uh, a lawyer has brought uh, his evidences and put them there. The judge is listening, and then the other side must say something. What would you say? To all this that Peter himself has said. Well, friends, and even Peter actually says, listen, the God I am representing and the Lord Jesus who I am showing that God says he's, uh, he is the Lord. God is so powerful and he's determined to crush all his enemies. Well, when it, it is put like that, how does one respond? We ask, Peter, why have you talked so toughly? Peter, this is your first sermon. Won't you come gently and slowly? Peter, if you were to show power of preaching and, and, and challenge your hearers. Come on, let it come slowly later in, because you'll be having loads of opportunities to preach. Why preach like that? 
Well, friends, let's look at the third place. Why all this? Verse 37. We, we see why by the response or the, the outcome. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, you know, that, friends, was the intended uh, purpose. In other words, really, we do not preach to just give people ideas or information. Our aim is not just to, to, to add a few more uh, bit of knowledge to our hearers. No, please. We as preachers now, and definitely what Peter is doing here, he is engaged in a matter of life and death, a matter of judgment, you know. And uh, this is what we see here. What shall we do? We, we, we have sinned. We, we, we are wrong. We have killed the one who we were waiting for all along, the one who joyed, who we, we claim to believe, and the rest of the books of the Bible and the prophecies of the Bible. We've been waiting all along. But he came and we have messed up. We've killed him. And you say he's the only hope and God will judge us. Friends, you can see how these things piled upon these people. And, uh, and that the, ju the judge they're going to deal with is now alive. Yeah, so... It was tough. What shall we do? So let me just say again before we move on that in, in preaching really, and, and it's not something that preachers learn and we don't want our hearers to be aware of. Uh, that's why we are saying it. Uh, the aim of our preaching is to bring you to have dealings with the living God, to see your own uh, sinfulness, dear friends, uh, to feel the pain of sin. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. As much as Peter argues like a, a wonderful lawyer, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring these things to bear upon um, the, the hearers, the listeners. Well, to what end? Oh, certainly so that a response would come. Do all respond positively when, uh, when they hear sharp truths from God's word? No, the book of Acts actually tells us that no, not all respond positively. And uh, just chapter 5 of Acts uh, reveal that. Uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, there in verse 30, if I just quickly read verses 30, um, down there, when people hear and they are challenged, they are convicted by the Holy Spirit, some people behave differently. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging me on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So that's the purpose. That's verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Then 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So friends, true it is possible. People can hear God's word. They can actually be challenged by the Holy Spirit. But they, do, they act differently. And by the way, in chapter 7, if you read chapter 7 um, in Stephen's speech, at the end, Stephen uh, is not pampering them. Stephen is saying, you stiff-necked people, you, you're guilty. But instead of saying, what should we do? Is there any hope for us? They, were, they basically stoned Stephen to death. Well, back to our passage. Acts chapter 2. Peter has brought God's word upon them. And they, they are cut to the heart. What shall we do? Then, friends, our passage, our fourth point is, I'm calling it amazing grace. Just amazing grace. Verse 38. Oh, 38 to the end. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, because the promise is for you and your uh, children, and for all who are afar of everyone whom the Lord, our God, shall call to himself. And indeed, let me just read to the end, verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here, friends, the Holy Spirit is the one who mightily works when his, God's word is preached. And as we have seen, of course, it's in chapter 5 and chapter 7. There are those who react so badly, wanting to kill the preacher. But, and in our passage here, there are those who respond or who react, we would say, positively in a way that we can only say, this is amazing grace. And it's amazing grace because Peter has challenged them. You killed the very one of God. You killed the one who was sent to you. You're guilty. But when they asked, is there any hope? Then Peter says, repent. So you see, friends, Yes, there is hope for those who would repent and are baptized. Repentance is to have a change of mind and a change of heart. If you're going one way, you won't listen to anything, to the warnings you're given. A young man 
moving on in life and, and just goes his own way. A young lady going her own way, following after the course of this world, wanting to keep up with the friends and the latest lifestyle and listening, as it were, to his or her own heart. For you, repentance would mean then turning a change of mind and turning away from that towards God, from evil towards God and, and God's word and God's commands and God's anointed, that is Christ, yes, by faith. And when you do that, then you have repented, and you are repenting. The Christian life is a life of repentance. We do not say, well, I repented, you know, so many years back. Oh, we live a life of repentance. Constantly we see the errors of our ways, and we turn back. But certainly, it begins somewhere. It begins at a point. You turn to Christ. But you see, there is a promise given there. The promise is given. Please, I'm not talking of repentance as something that then one forever lives. Oh, you know, I'm repenting. I, I've done wrong. I'm repenting. And so they live a miserable life ever since. So what is wrong with so-and-so? You know, we are repenting. No, please, that's not Christianity. It, true Christianity that we see in this first sermon is that when one repents, then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And of course, then they so live a life that is now so different. And that promise, by the way, is not just to the individual. This promise is to any and to all. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar of everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. And so... When the Holy Spirit comes, you know, when we, in our repentance, actually it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because there we are told at the end of verse 39, whom our God calls to himself. When we turn, we don't walk around with a shoulder high and neighbors wondering, what's happened to so and so? You know, they repented. No, Repentance doesn't qualify us or doesn't make us live differently in, in some weird way. No. It is the Lord who does it by his spirit. And as you know, Galatians tells us, what does the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon a person, uh, do? But they are full of love, joy, peace. And so it goes on self-control, and others. But, as we will see when you read on, those who then are filled with the Holy Spirit 
they are devoted to the things of God, to the people of God, and, and to the Lord's Supper, and to fel- you know, fellowship and prayers. When the Holy Spirit turns a person around in repentance, their lives, they still live in the world. We, we don't leave. We don't even go into some monastery somewhere. We live in our homes and with our neighbors, in our workplaces, but we live a different life. Our lives then just begin to be different. Well, friends, we have seen uh, these truths. And you know what? That day, that day, he went, of course, to uh, on to, to challenge them further, to bring God's word to bear upon them. The outcome, 3,000 were added. About 3,000 souls were added. Many were baptized that day. I've given this story, but back in Kenya, recently I've baptized uh, people both in our two church plants when we were constituting those church churches, uh, the baptisms that I carried uh, out left me with a, a very painful um, shoulder as I took people into the water and out, into the water and out. It, it was a makeshift. But here, this day, they had 3,000 close to, about 3,000 people. And all the apostles must have really had uh, a lot of work on that day. And the Bible doesn't record that any of them had, uh, you know, uh, challenges with their arms. But, uh, but no, the joy, the joy of seeing people who repent of their sins then come forward to be baptized. Well, so let me just, in conclusion, uh, bring out this. That one, Jesus Christ is Lord and is exalted. He is Lord and Savior, and He reigns. He rose again. He's in heaven, but He rules from heaven upon the earth. Have you submitted to Him? Have you submitted to Him? He Honestly, he's Lord. We've seen here. Peter's proved he is the big story behind Pentecost. And all through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And that statement that the father is saying, now listen, my son, you're going to succeed. Please, he's Lord. And I'm just raising this point so that if you are still dilly-dallying, if you are still saying, well, okay, let me just continue to come to this church and listen to these things, I, I don't need to hurry to make a decision. Please, make a decision. Well, you know, because really, you make the decision, but you know what? It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. So do you sit back and say, ah, if that's the case, then, well, the Holy Spirit will do the work. No, you make the decision. Turn around, repent. And then when you do, you'll only realize, you mean the Holy Spirit is the one who was drawing me? 
You don't go away angry and say, I thought I did it. You will rejoice. You will rejoice. So please, work on this. Work urgently because Christ is Lord. Not to crush people. He will crush his enemies, by the way. But the very aim, even why Joel gave his prophecy, is to the end that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Won't you be saved? Surely. Surely. And then quickly let me hurry. As we have seen, surely baptism follows repentance and faith. One who claims to be saved but not baptized, that's just a contradiction. Those who believed then uh, were baptized. And I want to encourage don't worry, I've only met your pastor now. If you are in this church and you claim to be saved but not baptized, don't say, maybe pastor told uh, this stranger about me. <laughs> no, we've not talked with pastor at all. However, this passage shows that those who truly repent should seek salvation, um, uh, repent, excuse me, baptism. And therefore, after that, of course, they can participate in the life of the church. And of course, just tied to that, clearly we see there is no secret believer, surely. Uh, you just need to identify yourself with uh, God's people as uh, immediately as you can. No secret believer. It's the joy that when the Lord saves you, you want to identify yourself with his people, uh, with his people, and then participate in the life of the church. Uh, the pastor did uh, allow me that if I go beyond a little, uh, you'd uh, be able to say, well, he's visiting with us. Let's be gracious to him. So, but now I must end. Oh, please. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. Have dealings with him while it is called today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Not to crush, not to, not to harm us, not to destroy us, no. But that we can be forgiven our sins, whatever sins we have committed. These people committed a horrible sin. They killed the very Son of God, their only hope. But Lord, just like them, we have lived our lives in sinfulness. We've if we were there then, we would equally have raised our hands saying, crucify him. And we do do that when we sin. Lord, uh, you are merciful to save. And I pray that uh, this day you would be merciful. Even here, bring salvation upon our children, upon the teenagers, upon the older ones. Bring salvation. And those who Say they are saved. Lord, may they be excited. May they look forward. May they talk with the leadership here that then they may be baptized like these people are baptized and then live their life in your church to the glory of your name. Hear our prayer. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.